Hey, Deserving Listeners, as a lot of you know, we will talk about movies and TV shows, and usually we try to talk about things that relate to psychology, and there isn't a movie that relates more to psychology, really, than One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which we're going to talk about today for a lot of reasons. Welcome to the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bruno? My name is Umberto Casania, and I sell and trade used baseball cards. Who are you, Colin? My name is Colin. I'm from Texas, and I design nurse outfits for megalomaniacal maniacs. For me, I was alive when this came out, but I didn't see it in the theater. I would have been four. But I remember watching it at home. It must have been like a Sunday night movie or something. What I remember most is really identifying with Chief because as a young person of color in a white community, I was always looking toward the non-white people as heroes, in a sense. Um, This is before I had any idea about racism as a topic or social justice or anything. But I remember really identifying with Chief because he was uh, not entirely uh, white. And he even kind of looked a little Asian because a lot of Native Americans will look a little bit Asian. And sometimes I was mistaken for American Indian. The other thing that I identified with was, as a young person, I was very big. I was comparatively very large. I was uh, always one of the largest people in my class, and not just kind of large, but like gargantuan (laughs) compared to the people around me. People eventually sort of caught up to me, but in my early years, I really identified myself as kind of like a tall monster like chief, you know, someone that was very notable for how large and how domineering it was, but at the same time, like not actually violent or wants to hurt anybody, right? Which is what Chief was like. Colin, I know a little bit about your relationship with this movie and or book. Uh, Tell us. I was cast as Billy Bibbit in the Richardson Theater production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. This is maybe two or three years ago. And I refused... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and um, I, I refused to watch the movie. I had seen it in 2008. I remember I was a junior, and I saw it at it, we had this little movie club that we would watch um, a few movies after school on like every third Friday. It was like four other film nerds in my class that we love movies. Anyway, Vicky picked One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and I loved the movie. I didn't have many memories of Billy beyond his, I guess you could say, interrogation scene with Nurse Ratchet right before he uh, exits the film. I didn't want to watch it again when I was studying for all because I didn't want to just be Brad Dorf. You know, I didn't want to get so, first of all, anxious watching such a great performance and feeling like I would never be able to live up to it. So I just created my own Billy, sort of from the ground up, and focused on, you know, this, that, or the other to, to bring the character to life as as if he were me. And instead of really focusing on and I didn't read the book either I was like I'm not doing that that's gonna I know a lot of actors do that and that's great but wasn't my style I have since watched the movie once the production wrapped probably five times because I find it endlessly fascinating because every character 
is sort of the protagonist of their own movie. You know, you could set this movie from the perspective of just about any of the inmates, I think, and you'd have a different style altogether. And so focusing on different uh, men each time has kind of been this fascinating experiment. No, no pun intended. Not yeah. to mention the nurse, right? I have finished Ratchet, by the way, the, the one that's based on her that. origin story in the 40s. Yeah, I tried to watch it at your request, and the first episode, tonally, in the first half hour, I just found, I was like, ugh, I don't like this style. It's like, maybe it gets better as as it goes on, but in the first bit of time, there's just like so much gore and murder and death and evilness, and it, I, I don't know, it, that sort of, like the same thing happened when I tried to watch Perry Mason, the first, you know, Perry Mason is a reboot, oh. right? And the first episode of Perry Mason, it just it just comes across like it's a basically like a horror show or something. Does Nurse Wait, so Ratchet, is Ratchet a, a horror show? I mean, the first half hour is definitely not for kids, and you know Ooh, it is it is like it. it is awful and just sadistic and just. This is the same character. This is the same. It character is the same me. character, but and but there's that's that's about where it ends. You know, they they sort of strip the nuance of the book and the um the movie and they um in its place in place of nuance they add a lot more fetishistic stylings to it so mm. it's more of a an erotic thriller than it is a you know deep emotional um psychological thriller not that erotic thrillers can't be psychological certainly many of them are and some of the best are certainly but yeah it it ups the gore it ups the sex and it ups the camp for sure it's a ryan murphy i don't know if either of you have watched american horror story or assassination yeah. of gianni versace but it's um it's one of his i guess you could say more shallow exploits yeah yeah did you like it I enjoyed it at, for what it was, <laughs> you know, I, it's certainly not art, like the way I would call the movie art. I mean, it is art. I'm not going to, you know, give my a thumb up my ass and say it's not, but it didn't appeal to me on an intellectual level, but it did satisfy me on a popcorn level because <laughs> I, I don't know what it is about Ryan Murphy, but he and I like the same things, <laughs> you know, on a, on a, on a baseline level, you know, it seems like he casts a lot of the people I'm attracted to. He casts a lot of the actresses that I hold in such high regard and are my uh, drag moms, as I would say. So, hmm. yeah. But <laughs> but what's what's odd for me is that one of the things I love about the movie is that actually, even though there's monstrous things that happen, uh, they don't present, even Nurse Ratchet is not presented as a, as a monster or some demonic creature. She's like, a nurse who's trying to make things work at the hospital or whatever. Uh, I guess in the book, she is presented a little bit worse, but I've never... Right. The articles that I read said that the actress actually was influential on that decision. She w would talk with the director and say that she thought that to make her evil wouldn't make it an interesting film or yeah. story. And, and so she worked with the director and the writers to tone it down and it's just a genius. brilliant yeah just genius because the you can really see where she's coming from in a lot of instances uh, you know by the end of the movie you could say well what if mcmurphy had succumbed to her power would billy still be alive yeah he probably yeah. would be <laughs> yeah. so 
Uh, now, McMurphy, how could he know that that would that chaos or freedom of choice or um, you know introducing sexuality into the yeah. ward would create someone's death? But uh, but I'm guessing Nurse Ratchet and other people would say that's exactly what we're trying to protect from. We're trying. We, you know, yeah. these people are here for a reason, and when you introduce you know drugs and alcohol and women and and all these you know kinds of things then something bad is you know is likely to happen and yeah i think I, yeah so uh so in that way her character as i get older is more sympathetic i think when i was yeah. a kid i saw her absolutely as a terrible <laughs> terrible yeah. human being and and as i watch it now i'm like well yeah i mean she, you know there are clearly times when she seems to be uh, I don't know, just arbitrarily, um, you know, uh, controlling, especially like the baseball game and that yeah. kind of thing. But but you could make the argument that she knew clinically that to introduce baseball and sports, in, maybe from previous experience, that yeah. uh, would result in over-emotionality and problems, you know, for people. But she certainly didn't try to explain that to... Uh, right. Yeah, so like, I, I think that's the thing that I like is that I, I have problems with her, and certainly a product of its time, too, because I mean, they lobotomize them, spoiler alert. But, like, at the same time, I'm sitting there sort of in the middle. It's, it's a gray area. You know, you're like, well, she's got a point here, or whatever. Instead of just, they could have absolutely made it, dun, 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 here comes Nurse Ratchet. Oh! Yeah. So let's get into the psychology about it. Um, as non-clinicians, the two of you, what do you think about the depictions of psychiatric illness in this movie? Not good. This is where you get film defining narrative. And I think that you have to go into a film like this with intention and understanding that this is a depiction of psych wards as some psych wards as they were in the early 60s. You know, when there wasn't a lot of accountability and things were run a different way. Things, you know, patients had less agency. Things would happen without their consent. They didn't have much choice at all. So uh, that's obviously very much changed. And, and all of these things that are used as threats, you know, like electroshock therapy or forced medicines, I think that, A, in the context of the story, work super well. And it creates this... this world that you can jump into again a cinematic world that makes total sense and all the characters work within it very well and it and it does say i think a lot about you know the the psych words at the time but i think now it really says in a symbolic way um something about our society's addictions to routine but in terms of like clinicians and the work that they're doing, I think people need to understand that this is not the depiction of the norm, especially now. Yeah, absolutely. As I was watching the movie again through my, you know, sort of modern eyes, educated eyes, because I, I can't remember the last time I saw it, but I thought, wow, this movie is just so expertly crafted, acted, lit, directed, writ, you know, everything about it is in the story is just so interesting so much so that the age of 10 or whenever I saw this on TV, I, I really was gripped by this story. It's just so good. And, and yet when I 
took a step back and was like, well, wait a second. What, what are they showing us here? I very, very quickly, you know, just kind of scanned, okay, okay, what, what diagnosis is, is Billy supposed to have? What diagnosis is that supposed you know, what depiction is going on here? And, uh, it it was clear to me that their direction or maybe their method acting, because there's a lot of method acting going on, a lot of improv, that the actors or the director or the writers were telling them, at least subtly or explicitly, that a mental uh, ward patient acts weirdly. And this is actually a trope that I find to be extremely bothersome and it must have its roots to some extent in this movie and maybe before is that you know they they either show they show two different kinds of and actually uh uh ace ventura or no was it ace ventura the second one or was it uh anyway one of the movies where jim carrey is in a mental hospital he does this too there are two types of patients that they'll show in these kinds of movies one is that they're comatose so they're so they're they're just kind of staring at the wall. And certainly there are people that are like that for mental illness causes or medication causes. Um, you know, uh, various different conditions will result in that kind of staring out the window kind of look. The other uh, trope that they will show is people acting very strangely, just kind of random. Because I think people without an understanding of mental illness, they're just like, well – you know, when people are and are crazy, they just they're like unpredictable. You know, you just don't know what they're going to do next. And that is ridiculous. Uh, the other uh, I'm remembering other tropes that they have. The other trope that they had in this movie was that mental illness patients act like children. I don't know if it was apparent to you all, but everyone aside from McMurphy, basically, if you didn't know what they looked like and you were just described what they were acting like, you'd be like, oh, those are children. Those are like seven-year-olds because they don't understand things and they're overly emotional and they have like simplistic ideas of how things work. And certainly there are mental conditions that can result in that. Absolutely. But so it's possible I could be convinced if someone was like, well, no, no, that patient actually is, you know, similar to autism and that patient is similar to someone who has early dementia and that person, that patient has brain damage. And, you know, I could be convinced, but uh, it, uh, in that way, it, it stigmatizes people with mental illness, you know. Uh, a lot of people, and I don't know the exact uh, disparate, you know, the distribution of mental illness in Oregon State Hospital in 1961, for example. But I would suspect that there would be a lot more people there who were had uh, schizophrenia, for example, and were on meds because they had meds for schizophrenia back then, or they were schizoaffective, bipolar, and they uh, were in the hospital temporarily because they were symptomatic for a time and they were just recovering a lot of people in in mental hospitals today are uh, those kinds of people where they had a sudden spike in symptomology they're uh, being medicated and observed so they don't hurt themselves or whatever and you wouldn't know that they had a mental illness if you interacted with them they would 
they have the same ability to act like an adult. They have the same ability to figure things out. They they don't overreact when they're pressed. Uh, they don't like act odd or weird or stare at people long, you know. And so uh, in that way, this movie uh, just falls just for an old trope. But I will forgive it because the the movie is well, I'll mostly forgive it, I suppose, because uh, the story is is just. Mostly. Is so good, but let's rate it because I, I want to be clear that I really like this movie. I'd give it an eight out of ten for the reasons I said. Berto, what what rating would you give it? I might give it a nine. I I've watched it probably three times in my life, and before this episode, it had been a long time, and I thought I remembered it, so I was like, yeah, I like it. And then I watched it, and first of all, there's so many things that I totally forgot about, and second. It was really excellent. I was like, wow. So yeah, I might I might give it a nine. I am also in the camp of nine. <laughs> <clears throat> Number nine. Number nine. Yeah, so just going into some more uh, psychology here, talking about a lobotomy, it's, it's a pretty central plot uh, decision. And I would say that it was depicted accurately for the most part. Um, for those who don't know what the lobotomy is, it's a barbaric surgery that was developed in the 40s and or somewhere around there the portuguese physician who actually developed it won the nobel prize in the 40s uh, because of how uh, miraculous it seemed at the time because if the goal is well we have someone who is extremely depressed or extremely delusional or extremely violent or extremely difficult to manage in a hospital, this surgery works uh, because <laughs> afterwards they they no longer have those problems without thinking of the broader picture of like, well, in what state are they in afterwards? Yeah. And also just a complete misunderstanding of what the brain was back then that any like third grader would understand that if you put an ice pick into someone's brain and kind of scramble, you know, sort of swish it back and forth in someone's brain, that that is absolutely going to be a problem for various different things that, that your brain is going to do. And and so it was, uh, uh, you know, designed to sever connections between the prefrontal cortex and the rest of the brain. Essentially, it's severe brain damage. It's, it's like, um, it's exactly how I said it. They, they put an uh, implement into the brain they would swish it back and forth and severing all the connections while keeping some of the connections. You can imagine winning a Nobel Prize before this. Like, what, what did you win it for? Well, I figured out, like, if a patient's giving you trouble and you can't, like, really help them, we just kill them. Yeah. It's ex- great. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> they use it a lot on Ratchet, too. There's well, a, there's a, it's a huge story element to at least the earlier episodes of Ratchet. Oh, the TV where, show. But, but it's very bizarre because it takes place in the 40s. It's, it's, um, they fetishize it, you know? Like they talk about, um, first of all, the doc, the main Dr. Hanover is like, ooh, I can't wait to, you know, use this because it's going to get me fame and exactly like what you were talking about, you know, the Nobel Prize is a thing. And there's, it's, there's some bizarre scenes that are very, um, erotic that I guess that's my word for the night is erotic um, <laughs> where Nurse Ratchet as portrayed by Sarah Paulson has Hunter Parrish like bound and gagged to this day uh, this like and he's dressed in a priest outfit and he's in bed and then she's like she's cooing to him and like she goes over with that you know Sarah Paulson voice and is like 
oh, well, this just has to happen because story, plot, A, B, C. And then she, like, you know, she's got this, like, Ryan Murphy outfit on and she pulls the uh. ice pick out like Sharon Stone and, like, administers the sexy lobotomy. And I'm like, what oh, the actual fuck is happening? God, I'm, I'm glad I missed that one. She wasn't the one giving the lobotomies in the movie. What, did she forget how to do it and now she's no longer allowed to do it or something? By the way, uh, was the Portuguese doctor's name uh, Mr. Lobos? Yeah. Tommy Lobos. <laughs> Tommy Lobos. <laughs> and by the way, lobotomies were still being um, performed at the time this movie came out. Um, it wasn't until oh, really? the late 70s. Yeah. What, what year was this movie? 75. 75, okay. And 75. the... That was the year uh, I was born. Yeah. And so the... Um, uh, the bigger picture here is that it had mixed results. Some of them would end up being like McMurphy in the movie. Some people would literally just die um, because of you know if you if you if you have a gunshot to the head, for example, <laughs> there's a chance you're going to die. And essentially, that's on the level of that to some extent. There's internal bleeding, you know, and when you have internal bleeding, you're going to. Uh, blood actually has a toxic effect on 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 brain matter. Anyway, um, and from what I remember from my <laughs> from my brain classes, um, the uh, but some people actually you know so there's a spectrum and a small percentage of people actually seemingly retained at least most of their personality and were better afterwards. Birdo is this a sexist movie? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I mean. It is a product of its time and, and maybe of the story in the book. Uh, the fact is that, you know, by modern standards right now, I think so. You know, the women are either enemies or sex objects. Right. <laughs> and uh, there's also, you know, just in the description, the McMurphy's description about everything is like, oh, you should be like chasing beaver and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so certainly very objectifying. Uh, I don't know if when the book was written, <laughs> that would have been the perception. No, I, I don't remember yeah. even the last time I watched this, which would have been, I don't know, 15, right. 20 years ago, noticing how sexist this movie is. Now, there are two different kinds of sexism one could accuse a piece of art of you know, committing. One is, is that it reflects the time and it reflects the meaning that uh, a man character in the story has sexist attitudes, for example. Uh, I was actually re-watching The, the Master, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. And the character, played by Joaquin Phoenix, has some interesting sexist attitudes in the beginning yeah. of, the, of the film. Uh, but the creation by Paul Thomas Anderson, could be argued, is not sexist because it is either... Uh, showing other elements of women or it's not going along with those notions. So in some way, this movie kind of does both, right? Because the notion that in 1961, you'd have an antisocial criminal with some, uh, shall we say, misogynistic ideas about women mixed in with he likes to hang out with them. <laughs> um, that's not surprising. And that would be uh, within the realm of possibility. But but they could have easily written this script with a little bit more uh, of the non-male gaze, if you will, right? And it's just as you say, Berto, you either have sort of blank, 
um, people like the secondary nurses or you have Nurse Ratchet who was an evil taskmaster and then you have these other women who are like promiscuous and hollow and objectified and they're not really I mean they're kind of developed at times you get a little bit but again it's another trope of movie writing at the time where floozies you know <laughs> were just yeah. written in a certain way where they're always giggling and uh, they don't well, really like, they don't have it, any wishes or any they're just and they'll do whatever you tell them to you know like McMurphy is like hey you know what about you having sex with Billy and she's exactly. like exactly oh, yeah well and then there's that super creepy scene that I actually you're right I probably wouldn't have seen through the same lens before but uh, he's like alright I'm gonna go with her over here you stay with her and like her friend stays and she looks over she's like uh hello yeah and she stays with the with the janitor or not the janitor the the guard but like she didn't want that like that's not what she wants and now like the guard obviously has intentions right it was a really creepy scene <laughs> right and and again it it's both somewhat accurate to the time cuz you could see a man treating a woman like that but to only have, you know, as a writer, you're looking at the script and you're like, huh, if I was a woman watching this movie, how would this make me feel? <laughs> like, right. hmm. Uh, Colin, what's your take on this? It certainly is sexist, but I don't think you can take it out. And here's why. Because... Okay, so trying to not, not to dog too much on Ratchet just this whole <laughs> this whole hour, but um, in Ratchet she has a lesbian relationship with Cynthia Nixon, and she works with um, people of color at the hospital, and certainly that probably happened. People probably did work with people of color, and people probably did have lesbian relationships. But I can't imagine that it would have played out the way that it plays out in Ratchet, where it doesn't feel recognizable as truth. And and so as a gay person, I'm very acutely aware that Hollywood has realized how um, homophobic it's been for years. And so they're trying to correct this. But as they do, you know, period pieces that take place, you know, back in the day, sometimes I feel like they overcorrect. And so it feels inorganic. Um, and I feel like people of color feel this way, too. It's like, well, certainly write more material for, for us, but don't um, take it out. Just set it from a different perspective, you know, and give the truth that there's probably a lot more racism and a lot more, you know, negative behavior than this just sort of glossing over the, the ideas of the time. So I think that when you look at the look at this film, it certainly is sexist. But when you look at the position um, that the the minorities you would you would say are in so for example all the female nurses um and all of their um co-workers who are black men you know they were put there almost like they were put there in their place you know as a hierarchy and i do think the film is sort of trying to say something about why nurse ratchets are created you know, because there are people a part of it. And you can and you can see this in the chief character, too, where he's like, you know, where McMurphy's telling him, why don't you leave, man? Why don't you leave? It'd be easy. And then he goes, well, sure for you. And so I in that sense, even though you don't get the scene of Nurse Ratchet being like empathetic or talking to her fellow nurses or, you know, you don't see any of the, um, you know, the black co-workers talking about how they're so sick and tired of this fucking system. You know, you do at least get the, um, the feeling that 
their behavior is in some way connected to the white power at you know that hangs over them like a dark cloud. In other words, their evil, quote unquote, not that anyone other than Nurse Ratchet is quote unquote evil, and not even she isn't even, but like the whatever you could say are their um negative qualities that um put them in opposition to our protagonists, it's all a part of a system. And we can't really fault them for it so much. Yeah, interesting. And I remember this being a, a very clear message that I downloaded as a child, which was, oh, these people are disabled decidedly, and they're in there for good reasons. When Billy has a breakdown at the end, emotionally, and you see McMurphy's face, it kind of flashed to McMurphy, and he's like, whoa, what's going on with Billy? Like, Billy's flipping out. Like, he has kind of a a cringe and a and a and a and almost disgust with what Billy is going through in the moment. And in that moment I think we as the viewer are supposed to say, Oh, that's why Billy is here. All of them are here because, you know, when um I can't remember the guy's name, the guy with the glasses, uh Chesick or whatever his name was, um, he also uh at some point you see him have this complete breakdown emotionally. And again, I think as viewers, we're like, oh, I get it. Yeah, it makes sense that these people are in here. McMurphy shouldn't be in here. And the chief shouldn't be in here, I guess. But the rest of them, yeah. And and so I think that also was somewhat of a justification for dismissing people with mental illness. Just saying, well, yeah, I mean, look look at these wackos. Like, they, they could never survive. In, in fact, good. I'm glad those weirdos are behind uh, closed doors and someone's watching over them like Nurse Ratchet because I don't want those people living next to me. That's that's crazy time, you know. So uh, that's another thing. Um, so McMurphy, I was thinking, well, if McMurphy was decided in the story to have a mental illness, what was it? And as a kid, I don't remember obviously thinking about this, but now I was like, I wonder, you know, if there if this was a true story, how could someone like McMurphy who according to a lot of people, including the physicians, doesn't have mental illness. Well, they could have diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder, which actually could land you in a mental hospital like that. Uh, And I think that's what they were thinking he was. But then again, at the beginning, he's like acting that strange where he's like kissing the the police officer. And maybe they thought maybe he was faking it uh, previous to getting to the hospital or something and acting like erratic. Um, anyway, uh, but he certainly actually would have qualified for at least on the antisocial spectrum until the end when he clearly cares more about Billy than he does about his own well-being. And there's two moments where he's like, ah, oh, Billy should have sex with someone, so I'll stay. And I'll just hand this woman over and she'll have sex with him, by the way. Uh, so she, he stays in that moment because he cares about Billy. And then he could have gotten out as they were distracted by Billy, but then he stays because he's like, what happened to Billy? So in those two moments, he shows that he has a heart and that he isn't antisocial in that way. He does have empathy. He does care about people, um, but then very quickly turns to that violent nature, which I, you know, could be argued as perhaps telling us maybe McMurphy deserved to be in this sort of situation, too. I mean, look how fast he went. He was going to murder that woman. Again, not reading the book, so just, just going by what I see on the, on the screen... I actually felt that McMurphy did have coping issues. Uh, he had 
impulsivity issues. And again, I don't know what this label would be. It's just from, you know, just seeing like if I was just even giving him advice as a person, I'd be like, well, you seem impulsive. You definitely seem to disregard rules. Uh, you seem to think that uh, you're that there's something special about you and rules don't apply to you. So a little bit of narcissist there. And um, he definitely seemed, how do I say this? Uh, like I would have almost, when we've discussed psychopathy and how like they keep, failing at things and you know they're just like getting their way i saw some of that too like there seemed to be a lot of self-sabotage going on um i i what i will say is that there were early signs even in the movie and i hear that in the book it's even more but like even in the movie there were early signs that he does care like he shows empathy and interest in the chief almost right away uh and he does care to like even though he's kind of you know using them a bit for his own purposes he wants to go fishing he's also like sort of you know you guys should live a little like you know learn right. how to fish these kinds of things right yeah um, the fishing scene another scene where he clearly is trying to help people because he he yeah. could have he he, he uh, which is kind of confusing when i rewatched it i was like he just escaped <laughs> he did why did he get on the bus so that he could p- play a prank and like uh, right. another scene where he stayed with the patients to help them right. instead of get away right right yeah. and i think it's important that he's sexist too you know not to go back to that but you know he, they don't try in other words like in that scene where he calls nurse ratchet a cunt um if they had you know uh, gone back and edited it and been like oh you know he's gonna talk to her but you know respect her and use this word because um, you know even if you have a complaint about somebody who's doing wrong at their workplace like nurse ratchet you don't have to use that kind of language i mean that's uh that is being sexist but it just felt like that character would use that kind of sexist rhetoric you know yeah absolutely yeah the the character was i think accurately realized written and acted it was a very convincing and as you're saying birdo noticing how people with psychopathy shoot themselves in the foot that if he truly wanted freedom and to get away with stuff, why did he repeatedly get in fights that, you know, escalated the law and he ends up being uh, imprisoned? Um, And then he, in his efforts to get out of his prison sentence, he goes to this mental hospital and doesn't realize that your prison sentence is is usually set, right? You're, You're in prison for three years, chance of parole in one year. And in mental institutions, when you're convicted, you know, one of the misunderstandings that people will say was like, you know, that person got away with it. You know, they, they convinced the jury that they were uh, insane at the time of the crime. What kind of BS is this? And that's a misunderstanding because uh, it's not necessarily a better thing because yeah. it once you're put into that system, you have to be deemed by the clinicians as not a threat to self or others in order to be released, regardless yeah. of how much time you're in there. So, you know, and sometimes that works out well. And, and sometimes you're in there for the rest of your life, even though your <laughs> prison sentence would have been six months. That, that was also telling, by the way, that he when he finds that out and then he's super angry at all of them, like, why didn't none of you tell me, you know, you saw me, you know, pushing the buttons of the nurse, blah, blah, blah. None of you warned me. 
It's, that's such a weird reaction. I thought that reaction, meaning weird as in, okay, maybe, maybe you do need some therapy here. Like, you know, that was <laughs> kind of an odd And the, second, the other one that I thought was really bizarre is when he bets them that he's going to be able to lift that ridiculous thing, the marble water thing, and right. throw it out the window. It's like, what? Yeah, and I, I, it, the, again, it's just part of the genius of this movie, the script, acting, directing, is that I, I had a – Colin, you're an expert, I think, on this. And when I was watching this movie, and I feel like we've, I've said this before about other movies we've seen, is that I can't imagine this, be, this movie being made today in the way that it was made, that there's a style that was present in the 70s that was so much more real, so much more yeah. down-to-earth, so much more grassroots or something. And it had – it's interesting to think because we – when you think about movies in the 50s, you think, okay, they're really playing it up. They don't really understand the form yet. It's basically a play that's being filmed. There's a lot of bad acting and bad writing and bad directing and bad lighting. You know, every you know, 50s movies, like, there are some shining examples. But for the most part, like, your average 50s movies are just like, oh, my God. Especially if you're looking at it, you know, as if compared to, like, things that are made today. But I, I find that uh, movies, and this is a well-known, I think, film uh, phenomenon, was that the 70s was the emergence of a particular style of making film that... It just feels so much real. What do you think, Colin? I agree, because I think it captures this, it being this film and also films made at this time, it captures as it is, as opposed to as we'd like it to be. And I think that films in surrounding you know, time periods um, idealize the looks of the characters that are in their film if you look at the people that are in this ward you know they've got shaggy beards they're wearing shitty clothes the lighting is uneven there's harsh lights on them um there's no need to um glow up anybody and there's no need to glow up the set you know the set is dingy and it looks um it looks metallic and worn and lived in and that also comes through i think in the shots it's not you know, like if you compare the cinematography of films made in the 60s versus the 70s, um, there's a lot more weird close-ups, extreme close-ups, hands, you know, in the scene where um, they're playing basketball, they could have just done medium, medium, long, medium, long, but instead they do, you know, close-up of the hands, on the basketball, long shot of him walking down, they, they allow the camera to be free and take us into this space, and so when the camera feels alive, so do we. And so I think nowadays, a lot of films suffer from stagnant cinematography. And that's, it's not the first era of time where, um, and certainly not all films, but there, there is a little, and I think that some of it comes from shooting for convenience. You know, I'm not dogging on uh, certain TV shows that do this because I understand that, you know, productions are pressed for time and they only have so much money to spend, but you can really tell when um, the camera is treated with character. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you mentioned the hair and the scruffiness. I noticed that too. And I, I guess in contrast to a lot of the productions of now that uh, I feel like actors, they want to look their best when they're on screen. <laughs> you know, they want their hair to look great. They want their makeup to look great uh, because they want to look great as human beings. They, you know, and also, I don't know, but I suspect that 
hair and makeup has gotten a lot better over the years in terms of the professionalism of the craft. And in this movie, I got the impression like all those dudes just woke up. I don't even think they any of them showered and they just started shooting. And I don't even think that was like on purpose. Like in today's movies, if they were trying to make these kinds of characters, you would be able to, and I often can tell, oh, they took that guy, he was fully showered and they put a ton of gel or mousse in his hair to make him look as if he just woke up, as if he's dirty. Whereas these guys in the movie, they look like real human beings with real faces and real skin and real hair and real scruff and real wrinkles. And, you know, it B- Billy had a pimple, a real pimple, yeah, a noticeable oh, yeah. real whitehead on the side of his head that I noticed clearly in one of those climax scenes. I was like, right. wow. Yeah. <laughs> and you can compare it to films made in the 2000s where right. the, the people look so dolled up. I mean, like there's a movie um, <clears throat> and I traditionally love John Carpenter, but he made a movie called The Ward. Um, with, I believe, Amber Heard. And they, they look like Victoria's Secret models doing a photo shoot in a, you know, in a psych ward. And right. like, and <laughs> it even, it, even it doesn't, and I'm, I'm trying not to accidentally be sexist because I'm not dogging on them just because they're beautiful women. That's fine. But, you know, like, also movies like Shutter Island that aren't, you know, female-centric. You know, <laughs> we've got uh, Leonardo DiCaprio looking like... Uh, you know, a celebrity. He looks like a movie star from a noir hero story or like Gothica with, you know, Halle Berry. They, they, they did really nice, cool blue lighting on her. So she's, yeah, she's in a psych ward, but she's still beautiful. But right. you know, those little things, they take you out of the experience. It doesn't yeah. feel real. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent, 110%. But also uh, a, a couple things that occurred to me related to this one, a lot of those actors, they probably wouldn't get cast today. <laughs> Like a lot of those <laughs> actors, they're not like, what, what is uh, the, they're not you know, camera they're, friendly. They're not camera friendly, <laughs> but they're so interesting, right? Yeah. And um, the the other thing I read, like, you know, uh, method acting was huge back then, right? So right. What, I, what I read was that the cast spent like two weeks or something in the ward yeah. ahead of time. Not only that, but they, a lot of the sort of B-roll scenes, if you will, were shot without them knowing it or without oh, wow. them knowing when the camera. So they were just act Ooh. asked to, to just, just method act, be your characters. Wow. Uh, you're in this mental institution and here are the parameters and they would do it for hours and hours. And it actually was kind of a concern The the actor who played, I think at Cheswick or Cheswick, I can't remember the guy who. It's had, Cheswick. You got oh, it. Cheswick. Okay, mm-hmm. the guy with the glasses and has the you know emotional episode later on. He apparently was so method acting that he had a lot of genuine emotions while shooting the movie, and a lot of the crew were worried about him actually. Wow! And they actually had to remove him from the set for a bit of time. Of just like, dude, you wow. you gotta like get yourself together you know you gotta separate it's like yourself. when uh, when jim carrey was playing uh the yeah. man on the moon right dude. <laughs> exactly um so uh yeah it it i really wish that film makers would watch this movie and other movies of this time you know jaws i think is what we we're talking about there's certain scenes in jaws even though jaws is you know just a monster movie in, in its essence there are scenes of incredible normal human moments that are they're not dolled up and 
even the sets aren't very dolled up. You know, everything is just real and, you know, normal and there's yeah. dirt in the corner and the hair isn't quite right and the outfits look just regular and they don't fit quite right. You know, everything just looks very normal and it has a uh, an effect on me anyway of really pulling me in. Uh, Ratchet, the new TV show is the direct opposite. It's almost, I, you know, the more and more you talk about this TV show, Colin, the more I'm wondering, why didn't they just call this like evil nurse or something? Like, <laughs> why do they even have to connect it to one flew of the cuckoo's nest? Because it doesn't sound spiritually, artistically, even story wise connected to the movie at all. Yeah. Oh, even, and even beyond that, they take what we've talked about, about not giving Nurse Ratchet the empathetic scenes, and they start with that, with their, like, lead-in pitch. In other words, the, the, the show teases you with, guess what? That person who was a villain, we're going to show you what made them the villain, and we're going to give you their real Jeez. character and show you the nuance of this person. And then they throw that out the window, make her a criminal, make her corrupt... Jeez. They actually have her murder people, and yeah, they give her a lesbian what? relationship, and and she and she gives sexy lobotomies. Oh, she gives so sexy dumb. lobotomies, and they they basically removed everything that was established as Nurse Ratchet in the original <laughs> film and added all these oh, new God. things. So yeah, you're right. It should have just been like new character, evil nurse. Yeah. American Horror Story Part 5, whatever. <laughs> yeah, golly. I mean, I, it's funny how I, I was worried that I wasn't giving it enough of a chance, but the more you describe it, I'm like, oh, God, I'm glad I bounced. <laughs> um, so let's talk about Billy Babbitt for a second. Possible diagnoses are social anxiety, avoided personality disorder, dependent personality disorder, perhaps mild autism, uh, perhaps other kinds of developmental disorders, mild developmental disorders, hard to know. Uh, obviously, stuttering uh, was another thing that he exhibited. Um, so he actually could have been a real patient, although a pretty unlikely person that would want to go to a mental hospital. You know, there's other places you can go. But, you know, who knows? 1961. Uh, but the thing I love about Billy Babbitt is the actor who, who plays him. His, and I remember no, noticing this when I was a kid watching this movie. His acting is so specific and consistent and believable. The way that he stares, and I know that that doesn't really uh, exemplify the genius of this sort of behavior that he did, but he had a very consistent way of, Okay, you know, now in, it's hard to imagine that he isn't Billy Babbitt, the actor. <laughs> like, it's hard to imagine, no, that's Grima Wormtongue uh, acting like Billy Babbitt. And he is, uh, you know, he'd look down and he'd be like, you know, and he'd do a pretty good stutter. And then when he was done, he would lock eyes with the person he was talking to, which actually some people with, you know, that stutter will do that. And then he, every, I'm getting chills just thinking about his performance. When he would stare into the eyes of the person he was talking to, you had no doubt that what was going through his soul was dependency and fear and longing and hope and dreams. You know, you just got all that in the, the way that that actor acted. And talk about scruffy hair. I mean, his hair was, you know, unkempt 
you know. But dude, the worst part about it is you see all those dreams, all that stuff, and to think he ends up having to serve the Baron, you know, it's like I know, right? That's pretty brutal. Totally. Uh, so, Colin, how did your performance uh, match up to that? It's funny that you talked about the stare and the eye contact because when I was playing the character, I wanted to avoid ever playing quote unquote crazy or anything that would lead me to, oh, this is an actor playing crazy, even if it wasn't my intention, because I think that happens a lot and I'm tired of it happening. Right. So um, the eyes thing for me became like the focus of every single night. And every, every time I talked, I found something to look at that was not the person's eyes. And the only time... So sometimes you... Because you have only so much to tease the audience with when you're on stage. You don't have camera angles. You don't have that much change in lighting. So you can do different things to like... that that are that may seem small but then feel like little explosions to the audience things like touch or um certain items that can be used or not used or hidden and so whenever i wanted a big moment i would look at somebody's face directly into their eyes and the audience would be like whoa like well i don't know maybe they weren't like whoa but i hope <laughs> they were like whoa look at this like big change in energy and I never actually decided what his affliction, quote unquote, was. I didn't ever want to decide because then it would take me down a rabbit hole of emulating somebody with a disorder and I didn't want to fall into any of those traps. But what I did think about was his past and the representation of mommy and why you would be in this psych ward willingly and i it all came back to mommy <laughs> and i thought about this figure at home that was possibly sexually manipulative and abusive and controlling and domineering and i am not making a case for oh you you know you experience that then you must have mental illness i mean kirk you talk about that all the time where you can't just say oh these factors happened to your life well you will become antisocial like not saying that at all but uh but yeah and so that's why the actress who played Nurse Ratchet, who is this like beautiful blonde lady, um, I always kind of got even more diminished whenever her character would do things on stage because I just saw her as mom, you know. You know, Kirk, he's making it sound all artsy, but I actually watched it. I went and watched it, <laughs> and all he did for half the play is suck his thumb on stage. I didn't suck my thumb, but I did set my hair on fire. I did do that one night. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe I saw the wrong play then. <laughs> I'm making it sound like his depiction of mommy issues was very simplistic. Oh. All he was doing was sucking his thumb. <laughs> but yeah, I set my hair on fire one night because at some point I played with a match. And I had very long hair, kind of like my quarantine hair now. And I like bent over because I was so in, like enraptured by this flame because it was a particularly tense scene. And so I was giving all my energy to this flame. <laughs> and my hair got a little spark. And so the only thing I could do was put it in my mouth. So I just ate my oh burnt my hair to save everybody else. The snow so, must have been awesome. <laughs> was it a lot of fire or just a little bit? It was a, like, and then I was like, and I just kind of sucked it all up. What did the audience do? You know, I reacted so quickly that uh, I don't think they 
they did anything audibly. I couldn't notice anything, but I I did speak to my no friends one... who came oh, okay. afterwards, well, they... and they said, "Oh yeah, you set your hair on fire, didn't you?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. That's well, crazy. thinking on your feet. Um, so a little <laughs> bit about Nurse Ratchet before going to break. Uh, I always thought it was Ratchet instead yeah, of yeah, me too. It's Ratchet, and I've noticed that. None of us have been saying ratchet. We've been saying ratchet. Yeah, ratchet. Uh, Nurse ratchet. <laughs> so I, 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 it's interesting in that respect. It's a Mandela effect. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm sure that's on one of the lists. Right? <laughs> Did you know it was ratchet? Not ratchet. Anyway. Um, so uh, I think the other interesting part about this film that I didn't notice on previous viewings is how it depicts group suppression, essentially. How you, uh, you know, uh, panopticon stuff, which I can go into perhaps in another episode, but it is a microcosm of how authority will dehumanize a group, will essentially brainwash them, will subtly influence and turn people against each other, will uh, establish control over the most mundane of things. Like, no, you are not going to watch baseball (laughs) as a way of establishing the broader message of you have no power. And and I will listen. I will act like I care. And I I will hear you. And I will always be the maternal or paternal... Uh, seemingly caring, loving, uh, attentive presence, but the policies that I have, that I have very clear justifications for, will very slowly but very surely make everyone feel powerless, no agency. You might as well just stare at the wall and cry because what else are you going to do with yourself? (laughs) And... Uh, you see what McMurphy follows into is that he's not used to that or he hasn't been socialized into the system or his personality or issues are anti-social. He's anti-authority. And so for him, he's like, well, uh, you're not, you know, uh, there's this, the scene where they watch the baseball, I find, I found to be particularly poignant in this way of like, Look, you can take away freedoms, you can take away my ability for democracy, you can take away you know, all of my human rights, you can force me to take pills, you can act like you're listening when you're not listening, but you can't take away my creativity. You can't take away my mind. And in my mind, I'm watching the World Series right now. And I can, you, you can, you know, I'm going to show you the last frontier of your ability to control me. And I thought... I don't know if it was in sort of intended that way, but I, I I really felt it this this you know this time through. That that was a great scene for sure because, uh, it, and it's great how they film it too, because at, at first they show us the blank TV, but from there on throughout the rest of the scene, they don't show us that side; they just show us everyone reacting. And if you didn't know better, if like you were walking by while someone's watching and you just saw that little bit. Yeah, you'd assume they're actually watching some game and reacting to it, and then you'd be puzzled why someone's upset about that. And so from her perspective, that's what she's seeing too. And so she's, like, 
it's this like rubbing it in her face that, oh, okay, well, we're doing exactly what we would have been doing anyways. So now what? <laughs> right. Oh, man. And the restraint of that scene is beautiful, you know, yeah. both on the part of Louise Fletcher. You know, she doesn't go, you know, she raises her voice, but she didn't have her Disney villain moment. And, and they also <laughs> didn't escalate the violence um, of any of the inmates or bring in, you know, the people who are going to beat him down into submission. They, they picked their moments of drama so carefully so that by the end when he strangles nurse ratchet it's like oh my god like we've we've that moment wouldn't have yeah. meant so much if it was just bl- if they if the screenwriter had just bludgeoned us with with that level of drama you know for the first 90 minutes right it also depicts this broader societal question of chaos versus safety that we're always struggling with um, for example in the early 80s it wasn't law in Washington State to wear your seatbelt. And so uh, that's chaos, right? But it's freedom, chaos and freedom. And then in my lifetime, I remember they passed this law that said, you will now, by law, wear a seatbelt. And you can get pulled over, for, you know, you can get a ticket for it, click it or ticket, and you, uh, we will make cars that will, you know, incessantly beep at you and until you do, uh, you know, wear a seatbelt. Now, is that a, is it a good idea? Of course, of course, it's a good idea to wear a seatbelt, but it does raise the larger question of freedom and, and chaos versus safety and control. And I thought that this movie in a, you know, film lit class paper sort of way definitely depicts that. Yeah. So, so I saw this inane post on Facebook the other day, and it was a a stupid meme, a picture of a caged lion in a 70s-style cage zoo, so none of these nice free ones, and then a majestic picture of a free lion. And the caption was, one of these lions has security, free shelter, free food, and free medical care. The other lion has no assurances. Everything about his quality of life is his own responsibility. Right. And then, of course, a drove of people like, I want to be the free lion. Oh, look at the caged lion. Sure, he's got all those free things, but look how depressed he looks. And it's like, oh, my God. It's like, what are we going to live in a Mad Max society where everyone's like, free lion? Yeah. We don't have any, any running water, electricity, nothing. We just all have our guns, and we roam free and anarchistic. I love it. Yeah. It's such an American delusion. Um, <laughs> yep. The... The other part here is the depiction of psychotherapy, which I don't remember, but as I was watching the show, I was like, oh, wow, this is... Because in my mind, Nurse Ratchet was just a nurse. But in the movie, she clearly is the therapist, too, uh, which yeah. I could absolutely see happening. I mean, there's explicit group therapy happening, and it is depicted in a way that I, I could see happening for sure. I mean, there are things happening like that today. Um, but just to be clear... Uh, it doesn't resemble any known therapy model <laughs> in that it was all about control. It wasn't about listening. It was sort of arbitrarily applied to everyone regardless of like, I, at no point did I, and this just bothers me in general about depictions of therapy and movies and TV is that why are they there? You know, like at what point does Billy say, you know what? I'm here to work on my self-esteem like that. It's never described. It's always like, well, you're all just crazy. And so y'all just need to like, listen to me. And, uh, there's a very specific point where she forces Billy to face his traumas, which are uh, something that people will do and just awful. The last thing I'll say is that Nurse Ratchet, her hair 
is so fantastic. <laughs> the last last thing I'll think I'll say is I burst out laughing when that guy with the long beard and the long hair is wearing her cap, and the oh, yeah. there it's the next day and he's wandering around with the cap on his head and he just looks hilarious. And one of the <laughs> nurses, one of the orderlies, comes over and just knocks it off of his head. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, it's this. It, I just thought that had to have been at least kind of improv in that moment. You know, that's not written in the script. It's just so perfect in that way. In those therapy sessions where it's Nurse Ratchet running the therapy, I found it really interesting that she was really worried about the, breaking the schedule and watching the game. But what's totally not disruptive to their mental sanity is them yelling at each other uncontrollably and throwing things at each other and all, you know, lighting their pants on fire. All that's fine. Right. Yeah. The the uh, goal, uh, seemingly, because it had that effect, was control, was keeping them submissive and symptomatic, if you will, while keeping her in absolute control. Now, you could say in the same way with the seatbelt thing, as we said earlier, that when she had complete control, they were all relatively content and safe. Mm -hmm. And when you introduce freedom and sex and drugs and rock and roll and chaos, which a lot of us would be like, yay, Billy gets to drink and have fun and meet girls and he's having a good time. But then what happens, right? And, you know, whether or not we want to use this as sort of an accurate example of what could happen to an actual human being in a mental world, but it is a broader question. Okay, the very, very last thing I'll say (laughs) Is the scene on the boat when Billy talks to the lady, and he oh, yeah. is he's you know really trying to get his words out. You, you, you know you, you you have you have beautiful hair, and I remember that. Scene. There's so many scenes in this movie that I remember. Uh, it, it just burned into my brain, and when I saw that scene again, watching it earlier this week, I was like, "Oh my god!" I remember every beat of this <laughs> scene. I remember every little look that Billy has, and every little tick that he has. Um, and the other scene that I remember every beat is when uh, Jack Nicholson says, okay, Billy, go in there with the girl. And he sits down and he's, he's going to wait for, you know, he's like, this won't take long. You know, he's, he's, a, he, and, and so Jack Nicholson sits down and he's like, okay, we'll wait seven minutes and, you know, then we'll be on our way. And the camera just lingers on his face. There's no script. I'm pretty sure it's an improv moment. And I'm guessing the editor was like, oh, my God, this is Jack Nicholson gold. Let's just leave the whole thing in. And Jack Nicholson goes through like 75 different emotions and states during that time. Yeah. You know, he's, he's kind of like, OK, let's sit here. And then he kind of looks off at one of the other actors and kind of laughs. And then he's kind of, he kind of gets disgusted. And then he kind of looks uncomfortable and he's trying to get comfortable. And then, he, you know, he just goes through all these different phases and it lingers there. And at, I remember as a kid, that scene, I was with that character and all those little beats that Jack Nicholson, you know, created just out of nothing at the height of his powers were just all just burned into my brain. You know, oh, what, wow. I, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that was so, great. So, Colin, before we go to break, how did you play that scene on the boat? The scene on the boat was like I had just taken ecstasy and I didn't know what ecstasy was. So everything <laughs> was more, you know, when I touched my, uh, my scene partner, um, the one who played 
oh god, cherry can candy. Sorry, candy. candy. There you go. Um, it was like uh, touching a light bulb, but like the best light bulb ever. So um, yeah, kid in the candy store up to the max. Um, just had the best best time. So are any of these scenes on YouTube or anything? Because we got to see. <laughs> no, yeah, I don't believe they are. This. There's a it's a mysterious <laughs> case actually. We uh, we did get the production filmed. Uh, the person who played McMurphy actually had a couple of his film buddies come and shoot the um, a couple of the performances from different angles and was going to composite them. I never saw that. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you're just going to have to do it all over again. Or once uh, we figure out other technological things, you can just recreate different scenes. And Berta yeah. will play... Actually, so this is a larger thing, is eventually, Colin... Uh, we can return to your brilliant idea, which was going to get in full steam this year of having live psychology in Seattle performances in Seattle. And Mm -hmm. we are definitely going to have to create one of those scenes. (laughs) Berta will play Candy. You will play Billy. I will play Nurse Ratchet or McMurphy or (laughs) one of the other. Or no, I'll get to play my character. I'll get to play Chief and I'll just stand stand in the corner. And uh, that'll be awesome. Yes. (laughs) You just made... Uh, a thousand psychology in Seattle fans' dreams come true. <laughs> yeah, we we were going to. Uh, it was Colin's idea to have monthly live shows in Seattle, and they were going to be like variety shows, uh, various different things. And Colin was going to be in full control as the stage dude, as the drama guy, <laughs> and uh, it 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 had uh, such awesome aspirations. But we'll ha- we'll all have to wait until we're all. Vaccine, which according to the administration is happening, uh, not enter- actually. This episode is going to come out after the election, by the way. Well, and we um, did our we did one of the shows, like our first show we did was in in China in Wuhan. We had just gone. Remember, we got some food at like a market. Then we went. We did this show with a whole bunch of people. And then we flew back, and I don't know. Everything went to hell after that. <laughs> it, it, it weirdly coincided with yeah. the pandemic. You know, coincidences they happen all the time. Thank you, Dink. All right, let's take a break and then briefly go into some of the details of the movie. What do you say? Let's do it. <laughs> Let me get my shock therapy. <laughs> talk therapy. I totally forgot. There, there's absolutely we, we have to talk about shock shock therapy <laughs> as well. In that, it, for, you know, because it's always something people ask about occasionally. In, uh, electroshock therapy, electroconvulsive therapy. It is not something that I know much about. I've never done it. I've never had a patient that had that happen to him. But from my understanding, uh, it was a lot more uh, widely used for a lot more kinds of issues back in the day. A way to think about it in layman's terms is essentially it's resetting your brain. And for treatment-resistant mental illnesses, depression, psychosis, it still will be used occasionally today and with some success rate. You know, medications aren't working, CBT isn't working, uh, you know, nothing's working, diet's not working, and they turn to electroconvulsive, and sometimes it works. And some people just have it as a regular part of their treatment protocol that every so often they just need it to uh, live a functional life. Uh, it doesn't work for everyone. Sometimes it, it's not. And, and in the past, it was used in a way that was that was overly used. Um, and clearly in this movie, they show it being used as a punishment for McMurphy. There's there's no there, – in 1961, there would have been no justification uh, for administering that um, to him. 
Well, I, I took it as like a sexy electroshock thing. Yeah, I'm sure in Nurse Ratchet season two, there'll be like sexy electroconvulsive therapy. All right, let's actually go to the break. All right, we're back from the break. So, Berto, if Nurse Ratchet were to convince everyone in group therapy to become a patron of the podcast, what would they sound like? Hi, I would like for each of you to go around and explain to me your flaws. No, I need you to sit down. I need you to sit down. And you, navigate to Patreon. You're not listening to me. Mr. Anderson, you need to sit down and navigate right now. Fine, I will have to lobotomize you, but not before you become a patron. Guards! (laughs) You really nailed the cadence of her performance. That was pretty good. I could see the hair almost. (laughs) (laughs) Some details about this movie. Um, 1975, uh, it was in... Uh, production for like a long time uh kirk douglas actually wanted to get the movie made and he wanted to he wanted to be uh, mcmurphy mm. in, in the 60s but oh. couldn't get the movie completed and so by the time it came out his son michael douglas produced it i believe yeah and that's why danny devito was in it right exactly. college roommates right um the writer actually worked in a mental hospital uh, before writing the book and observed patients before and after a lobotomy. So he actually worked in his own experiences with that. Uh, director Milos Forman. Is that how you pronounce his name? Milos Forman? Milos. Um, <laughs> he has made a lot of movies after this that I recognize. He made some before that I didn't recognize, but... After he made Hair, the movie, he at uh, 79, 81, Ragtime, 84, Amadeus. Amadeus, Amadeus, which is my favorite movie. Uh, 89, Valmont, which I don't remember. 96, People vs. Larry Flint, which seems like a wow. very different movie. I totally forgot that was him. Wow. Uh, 1999, Man on the Moon, which you mentioned yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were talking about it, yeah. And Gotta 2006, Goya's Ghosts, which I which I don't recommend recognize. Um, very interesting uh, set of movies that yeah. he has made. I mean, Amadeus doesn't resemble this movie at all. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, or People versus Very Larry Flint, or Man on the Moon. I mean, none of these things seem connected. <laughs> I would never have thought any of these movies were directed by the same human being. <laughs> What, what flexibility, huh? Yeah. What range? And what great movies. I mean, People yeah. vs. Larry Flint is an underrated movie. Yep, it, yep. Very good. Uh, Woody Harrelson gives a excellent performance. I feel like we have been denied better roles for that actor. Um, Man Wait, on the, the Moon is amazing. Amadeus, yeah, obviously, but anyway. Courtney Love you, isn't in both of those, is she? I don't know. She's in Did Man you on say the Moon. You, didn't know or you didn't recommend Goya's Ghost? I didn't know that movie. Is it good? Oh. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's got some great performances by Javier Bardem and Stellan Skarsgård, who I also really enjoy. I, I mean, it's, um, it's a, again, as we've already said, a very different style. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have any idea that it was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest director. It yeah. is Courtney Love. I just looked it up. She's in both of those movies. Interesting. Yeah, he tended to use a fair amount of 
same actors throughout uh, different movies. Um, apparently, the director and Jack Nicholson had a huge fight during the movie. What am I getting this from? Uh, Mentalfloss.com. Jack Nicholson refused to speak with Foreman, the director, for a large chunk of the production. Nicholson took issue with Foreman's suggestion that the hospital inmates would be unruly at the beginning of the movie. And uh, Jack Nicholson was like, no, no, no. They should be in control, under control in the beginning of the movie. And my character, McMurphy, should actually create chaos, which... Is, yeah. is the right choice, by the way. Of course. Yes. Yeah. And apparently for most of the film, the director and uh, Nicholson didn't talk other than what they had to communicate about. Which, which wow. makes me wonder if that's how we get such a good Nicholson performance because he was unleashed from an actual director. Wow. You know what I mean? Because he clearly is improving a lot of the movie, you know? Well, but, but what's confusing to me is, so it sounds like Nick, Nick, uh, Jack Nicholson won in the end. Yeah, right. He, and I guess he was too big of an actor at that point? You know, I'm trying to, it's hard, it's always hard to know, but I would suspect, uh, given my understanding of Foreman's career at that point and yeah. Jack Nicholson's career, it was Jack Nicholson had like a thousand times more clout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, okay, so he wins the day, and, but then Milas is like, oh, grr, grumpy. Now, the thing is, I do see his point. Like, you could have had it that way, where, because it because depends on what you consider success. If you consider success like the people are actually better adjusted because he starts exposing them to lit life, then, okay, then maybe at the beginning, Nurse Ratchet is like trying to control them through control, but it doesn't work. Oh, I, I see. I can see it. But I do agree that cinematically, the way it plays out is brilliant. Well, a more cynical, depressing, perhaps realistic storyline yeah. to the themes, yeah. not to mental illness, but to the themes yeah. of chaos versus control is much better served by Nicholson's choice, right? Yeah. Um, Academy Awards, it is one of the three movies of all time to win the big five. Best picture, best director, best actor, best actress, and best screenplay. Uh yeah. It, do you know the other two movies, Colin, that made, that got the big five? No. <laughs> one. I you, know one of them. Which, which, what is it? Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Oh, wait, the other one. No, 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 no. It's not the big five because not actor. I was going to guess Lord of the Rings, but certainly that was not that would not be actors. No, yeah. Um, it's a, a movie from 1934 called That Happened One Night, which I'm guessing none of us have seen. But by <laughs> the way, I also thought the other one had been Kramer versus Kramer. Oh. But then I found out, and it did. It won all five, except the female one was supporting. Oh. But I'm like, why did she only get a supporting role for that? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's sometimes they're, they're lying between best actress and best supporting actress. So yeah. Like, like a couple of years ago, or maybe last year, I remember being like, how is that person, like, supporting. They're, like, one of the yeah. main characters in the film. Because, like, Nurse Ratched wasn't in every scene. She was very key in the movie. Right. And neither was, uh, uh, what's her name, in uh, Kramer vs. Kramer. But she was the wife. Like, come right. on. Yeah. Like, anyways. Um, it also won, or it was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for uh, the guy who played Billy. It was nominated for Best Score, Best Editing, Best Cinematography. Um, but it didn't win those. Uh, let's see. The writer of the novel, Ken Kenzie, Kesey, Kesey, Ken Kesey, sold the film rights for twenty thousand dollars, which would have been quite a bit of, quite a bit of money back then, honestly. I but guess so. He 
apparently hated Jack Nicholson as an actor and felt that it was a bad choice to cast him, which, of course, in today's world or after the did so well. What I find to be interesting to me is that this movie was a blockbuster. It was one of the highest grossing films of that time and I think holds like records for being in theaters the longest. Wow. Which or not the longest, but one of the longest running films in theaters around the world. This was a popular movie around the world. And again, I just want to point out that we would not have if this movie was even you know made even better and maybe a little bit less misogynistic for today's audience. It would be a small art house film, or maybe a, a, an Oscars darling that no one saw. You know. Yeah. But I could have made it into a blockbuster because you just you <laughs> add a few special effects and powers to Nurse Ratched, and her and eyes well, have to turn red and sexy. And sexy, sexy lobotomies and <laughs> and uh, more more murder, you know, uh, for sure. Um, okay, Colin, what's the moral of the story? I think that it's. I mean, we've touched on control, but I think to a certain degree, it's about the balance between order and control, and how to, or excuse me, chaos and control, and the fact that. Too much unchecked power creates lobotomy, and too much unchecked control leads to death. So there seems to be, but with just the right amount of chaos, people can come alive, and with just the right amount of order, people stay safe. So there's something about the negotiation of where order meets chaos that has to do with our, I think, place in society. Interesting. How does that apply, do you think? Colin to our world today. Oh my goodness. I didn't realize how topical this uh, movie was going to be when I rewatched it just to refresh. <laughs> um, I think it's absolutely um, applicable to our current political climate because it's so, there's so much uh, diametric opposition and we find ourselves um, caught in the middle of this war where everything down to a, a pandemic that affects the entire world is a political marketing, um, you know, particular, or a, it's a side. It's a side to take as opposed to something we are all unified on. And I, I do believe that there are a lot of voices. I was actually just talking about this with a coworker today. Um, I find that, and, and you've, you've touched on this too, whenever they talk about the statistics of COVID, they're not careful about the way that they do it. You know, they bring up all these numbers that are, you know, meant to incite fear. And they don't compare them to the numbers of, say, like how many people have contracted the flu or how many people have, you know, died, um, but, you know, of the flu or of other things. They don't do any logical comparisons. And so we're, I think right now, we don't know how much control we have. And we're trying to break free from some of these things. And, we're we're on a tightrope right now, trying to keep ourselves safe, but feeling that pull to chaos, and um, and we see that with people lashing out, and and I think that's why so many online communities are so fraught with drama right now, because it's an outlet for people to express their um, dissatisfaction. Yeah. Meanwhile, the system has a life of its own and a power and a crazy making gaslighting effect, if you will, on all of us. And 
nothing ever changes. <laughs> and the only way out is uh, sorry to be morbid, but death or escape. And the only way you can escape is if you're a giant person who can pick up a marble block and throw it through a window. Uh, it, yeah, it's interesting. Berto, what's the moral of the story to you? I think the uh, the idea of absolute control is one one of the messages of the movie is that it doesn't exist. Like it's a fantasy. You can't have absolute control. And the the tighter you squeeze your grip on the colonies, the more they'll rebel and leave your grip, Darth Vader. That I'm butchering these lines. Anyways, um, so that's one thing. And then the other part is that there's a fine line between sanity and insanity, because um, you know, who is really sane? Who is really mentally all there? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, so that was kind of the other thing. I, and, and granted, it's done in a cartoony way, as you, as you both were saying earlier. Uh, we are only presented sort of like extreme examples of mental issues um, and very unclear ones at that. But at the same time, it, you know, we're also shown like, you know, yeah. at least a few of those characters are are people. And then, and then he's, I mean, he's questionably one of the one of the more dangerous ones. And then right. she, the nurse, is always also like a little questionable. And, and the whole hospital does crazy things to them, like lobotomizes him. Anyways, so that's my thing. Yeah, I, I, I was totally uh, seeing that point as well until the very end where the movie seems to be saying, look, you know, these guys aren't that bad. They're just a little different. They're a little odd and they're shunned by society or whatever the case may be, until the very end when, aside from Chief, they really show, at least by the end, they show that a lot of those characters really need to be separated from society, you know. Um, but maybe with Billy, you can make the argument that audiences walk away with this notion of like, well, he wouldn't be that way if he had a normal relationship with a mother. <laughs> you know, you, you get the sense like there's something weird going on there. Um but yeah, okay. So just to rattle through some of my notes here, is it was Christopher Lloyd's very first noticeable role? Maybe his no, his first role actually. And he was on Taxi three years later, along, along with Danny DeVito, who it was his one of his first. Uh, it was one of his very first roles, and perhaps his most noticeable role in in film and television. Although he was a a stage actor prior to that. And again, he was uh, uh, Michael Douglas' oldest friend. Um, and let's see. He, and he played, he was in the off-Broadway production. Let's see, uh, Chief Brad played by Will Sampson. Da, da, da. Anyway, the guy who played Billy, Brad Dourif, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, it was his first role ever. Would he, of huh. course, if you don't know, he played Grima Wormtongue in The Lord of the Rings. And so that is just incredible, particularly... Uh, Brad Dourif, his character is so nuanced and so specific and so wonderfully realized and could not have been written on the page that way and could not have been directed that way. I mean, maybe influenced by a director, but it's so much that actor's creation. I'm quite sure of it. It's very, very impressive. And, and also kind of a testament to filmmaking at the time that they would just let these brand new actors just kind of riff and decide for themselves. Yeah. Like even the scenes with Christopher Lloyd, when he's acting, you can see, oh, no, no, that's 
Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> that's that's that actor. There's no way they knew. Shut up! Yeah. Shut up! <laughs> yeah, he's just he's so much acting like him. You know, you just can tell. <laughs> I was expecting twenty one point one gigawatt star. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Louise Fletcher. She played uh, Nurse Ratchet. She, how old do you think the actress was at the time, Colin? Thirty five. Pretty good guess. What do you What do you think, Berto? Oh, I was going to say like. 40 or something? Yeah, she's about 40 years old. Yeah. Uh, younger than you and me, Berto. Let's just put it that way. That's crazy, because yeah. she's supposed to be like 50 in the book, I think. Oh, is she? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I knew this, but I was looking it up, and she played Kai Wen Adami on Deep Space Nine. Any Deep Space Nine watchers? I know you don't watch huh. it, Berto. Did you Did you ever watch Deep Space Nine, Colin? No. Oh, sorry. No. I yeah. Haven't. It's one of my favorite Star Trek uh, incarnations. I don't know if it holds up very well, but is, the, it, is that the one with nine of six? Uh, six, six of nine. Of nine. <laughs> no, that's Vo- <laughs> that's Voyager. Voyager oh. started out okay, and um, it uh, I don't know went a little bit off the rails for me. But is, is she called six of nine because there's like nine of of those seven of or something? Seven of nine. Yeah, of, yeah. right. You know the the Borg collective. I see. You know, in her pod, there were nine, and she was. Okay. You know. But yeah, she played a very similar character on Deep Space Nine—a very controlled, evil, or you know, but sympathetic character. Typecast um, much? <laughs> yeah. Uh, in later interviews, uh, I'm reading from the internet here. Louise Fletcher said that she found ways to make the character more human. I can't remember where I wrote this down, but she apparently was so put off by this character because it was so evil to her. It felt so hard. It was hard for her to play this role. She felt very bad for treating the other actors the way she was treating that um, she didn't watch the movie for years afterwards because she's just I don't want to watch myself treating other people like that. The other thing she did was that there was so much method acting that she was worried during the production that all the actors would think she was like Nurse Ratchet, that she was oh, wow. a bad person. So one day at the end of production, she stripped down to her panties huh. and wandered and walked around the the you know the the psych ward. What? In front of all the actors and everyone else. Okay, you know, you got to think this is 1974 when they're filming this, and it's a very different time. But there's a picture of it on the internet. So if you want to Google that, uh, you can Google Louise Fletcher, uh, panties or nude on set. and um, That's a pretty effective way to change everyone's perspective about you. Yeah, that's what she said. <laughs> Um, so other people, let's see, Kirk Douglas spearheaded the first attempt. He wanted to play McMurphy. When production began 10 years later, Douglas was too old to play the part. Uh, people considered for McMurphy were Gene Hackman, Marlon Brando, and his personal favorite, Burt Reynolds. Oh. Uh, so Burt Reynolds was famously, uh, now as a younger Hmm. person, Colin, what associations do you have with Burt Reynolds? The rug doesn't he wasn't he didn't he pose on a rug? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Well, and he has a rug as a, a lot of chest hair. What else do you associate mm-hmm. with him? Anything else? Uh, I saw him in a movie about it was a noir. Um, I don't know how rewatchable it is, but it's called Tempted, set in Louisiana with Suffren Burroughs. Okay, and you obviously saw Boogie Nights. Yes. Yeah. So that that's all your association with Burt Reynolds. That's it. So Burt Reynolds was a god 
in the 70s. Yep. <laughs> he was in all the best movies. He was, uh, you know, he was the epitome of the American man. Mustache, swarthy, a uh, lot of chest hair, super cool in all the right movies, uh, snarky. He was, I think, in Playboy it, famously. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was uh, bigger than any star could be today, honestly. Um, and I feel like there are certain things about the 70s and 80s that people understand today. You know, like everyone understands that Thriller and Michael Jackson was big in the 80s. You know, even, even people as young as Colin understand that. But for some reason, uh, Burt Reynolds was just after 1985, just became like just lost in history. But for those of yeah. us who went through that time, he was gigantic and it makes total sense that he was considered for this part because he was, he was, you know, Gene Hackman, Marlon Brando, Burt Reynolds. These were the biggest actors, Jack Nicholson. You know, these were all people that... And to exemplify how big of a star Burt Reynolds was, uh, does anyone know other roles that he was offered, not just considered for, but offered and that he turned down? This is just a short list. Uh, Berto, do you know? Uh, Indiana Jones. No, that's close. It was another... Uh, Star Wars. I think I know this one, actually. (laughs) What? Wasn't it James Bond? Yeah, both of those. So you're both right. James Bond without an accent because I'm an American. (laughs) Yeah, so Han Solo, uh, he said in an interview, I didn't want to play that kind of role at the time. Now I regret it. I wish I would have done it. (laughs) Also, (laughs) Also James Bond, after Connery left in the 70s, he was absolutely on the list of just like, I mean, of he, had, course. he had the same look, but, but he's American. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how that would have worked exactly. What's a fake accent, Miss Money Penny? I guess. I don't, I just can't imagine that. He was also, uh, offered the role of Michael Corleone in the Godfather played by Al Pacino, oh, which makes a lot more sense at Al Pacino because Al Pacino was not a star the way, Burt Reynolds was at the time, and James Caan and Marlon Brando. You know, he they wanted big stars in that movie. But it worked so well that the the character that was a no one in the family that was right. becoming the boss was yeah, of not course, someone we had a preconceived notion of. Yeah, of course, it's like how in the world would Burt Reynolds as Han Solo? Like, I just, <laughs> I mean, at least that one I can kind of imagine. But Michael, anyway, he was supposed to play um, uh, John Mc. Um, and Kane and Bruce and Die Hard, John McClane. Oh, John McClane. Yeah. It's getting hot. Like, yeah, my yeah. Song? I know that song. That's, that's how I usually remember. <laughs> uh, Berto wrote a song with John McClane, McClane in the, and... in the uh, lyrics. And, but uh, when I say it fast, people thought I was talking about John McCain. <laughs> like I was getting all political. How did that full line go? What, oh, man. In, in context. It's getting harder uh, and more insane, like John McClane. Only okay. harder and more insane, something like that. Yeah. Okay, well, know. we're going to need a re-release of this soon. Well, it's on it's, uh, it's on Spotify. Stuff. Yeah, yeah Spotify. you can go to Spotify, go to Missionary the Band. It's and the last song. Click on Aquarian. Oh, um, I'm going to. Uh, mm. And the previous, well, anyway, uh, Jack Nicholson's role in terms of endearment, he was supposed to play that role as well. Oh, actually, I could have seen that. I yeah. could have seen that. Yeah. Um, other kinds of things is, 
Um, I thought that some of the actors were overacting at times. The patients. I thought some of the times I was like, okay, let's tone it down a little what bit. What are you talking about, Kirk? <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. I was just looking at other things in my notes here. Uh, oh, this is this is great. So when producers were shopping the picture to studios, 20th Century Fox was interested, but with a catch. 20th Century Fox would agree to distribute the film, but only if the filmmakers – would agree to rewrite the ending because they wanted what dif- what change, Colin, do you think they wanted? Rewrite the ending. Hmm. I Well, usually they want someone to be punished more. Did they want Nurse Ratchet to die? Interesting. Berto, what, th- what do you think? Yeah, no, no, no. Of course. They wanted him to escape. He was going to see right. freedom. Yeah, they oh, wanted- happy en- yeah, that's yeah. it. The happy ending. Right. They wanted McMurphy to live and escape. Damn. And uh, Michael Douglas refused. He said, nope, there's no way we're going to do that. It's going to ruin the movie. Uh, and they put all they put it, the whole project on the line, and United Artists stepped in and distributed the film. That's so awesome. Like, I, by the way, as I said, I had forgotten a lot of things. Towards the end, I was trying to figure out, wait, how does this end again? Right. I remember there was like, in my mind, there was like this big riot at the end, and something bad happens and but i couldn't remember the details and i was shocked genuinely shocked you know from moment to moment i'm like oh, right oh he kills him oh god and then wait a minute oh they don't lobotomize him do, do they lobot oh my god they lobotomize him. <laughs> yeah. i think oh, i didn't and the, guess and the indian like the, the chief the chief kills him i mean oh like, yeah that's crazy it's so but that's dark. why I didn't guess that that was the change because in my head I'm oh. thinking yeah something sad does happen but there is a happy ending per se because someone does <laughs> Cause, escape because the chief escapes but it's so sad like he he chokes him everything yeah. is sad about the ending except like the slight little well I guess he he gets away he feels like a mountain bit. yay yeah, yeah. alright everyone out there please take care of yourself because you deserve it <laughs>